Okay, uh, so as Eric has said, uh, as we resume our discussion of the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith, tonight we are looking at two sections. First, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and then the work of the Spirit prior to Christ's coming. For this first section, I'm going to lay out some broad context about the Holy Spirit in the Trinity um, first, and then we'll look at that section of the statement line by line. The Hebrew word used to refer to the Holy Spirit is ruach, R-U-A-C-H. It means wind, breath, or spirit. It's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and at times the word is used in ways that don't refer to deity. For example, if a spirit of jealousy comes over a husband, here's what you do about it. Uh, But right from the beginning of the Bible, we see it referring to deity. Genesis 1-2 says that the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, was hovering over the face of the waters. This word used to refer to the person of the Holy Spirit tells us something about him. Regarding the three persons of the Trinity, Dr. Scott Swain, who's a professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, says this, on the basis of the revealed names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the church confesses That within the eternal depths of God's being, there is one who stands in relation of a father to a son, one who stands in the relation of a son to a father, and one who is breathed forth in the mutual love of the other two. God the Father and God the Son mutually delight and love each other. They've been doing that from eternity. Jesus says in John 17, the high priestly prayer, he's praying for believers that they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. Jonathan Edwards wrote an unpublished uh, essay on the Trinity that's been very helpful to me. And this is what Edwards says of the interaction between the persons of the Trinity and specifically the Holy Spirit. He says, this, speaking of the love between the Father and the Son, is the eternal and most perfect and essential act of the divine nature, wherein the Godhead acts to an infinite degree and in the most perfect manner possible. The divine essence itself flows out and is, as it were, breathed forth in love and joy. And there proceeds the third person in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So what we're saying is a unique identifying feature of the Holy Spirit is the divine person eternally breathed out or eternally sent by the person of the Father and person of the Son in expression of their love. This view of God, one God existing in three persons, eternally interacting, is unique to Christianity and has implications, two of which are often mentioned. Number one, God is not dependent on 
anybody or anything to have purpose and contentment. The second thing is, at the core of God's eternal being is a loving relationship. I recall a debate I heard uh, featuring a well-known atheist. And he thought the Christian God must be the most egotistical being to be jealous for, to require, to, to seek out the love of his creatures. And he didn't say it that kindly. Do you see how blinded the mind of the unbeliever is? He couldn't have a more wrong view of God, and here's why. First, God has no need for created beings to love him. The person of the Trinity were perfectly loving and perfectly loved in all eternity. Second, where this man saw a selfish, egotistical God, we see a gracious, generous God beyond our wildest imagination. We're not just called to love God. We're called to receive his love, his perfect love as well. Jesus says in John 14, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in changing a rebel of God to his child, we are invited to be part of this eternal love relationship. And using Jonathan Edwards' words again, a love that is the most amazing and perfect act of the divine nature. And that, that's just an amazing truth. Okay, uh, everybody with me on the brief overview? So we're going we're gonna to go in now and look line by line um, at the first section. Sometimes even clause by clause. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And we'll stop there. The emphasis here is on person. The Holy Spirit is not a force. He is not a power. The Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture with personal pronouns and with personal characteristics. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the helper, and he will guide you in all truth. The Holy Spirit speaks. He appoints leaders within the church. He gives giftings to believers according to his will. He can be grieved. He can be lied to. And he can be blasphemed. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Next, who proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. I talked about this in the brief overview, but to emphasize, we are not saying here that the Spirit is somehow originating from or derives power from the Father or Son. His eternal characteristic is that the Holy Spirit is breathed out, is sent, and we read that both the Father and the Son hold this, uh, send the Holy Spirit at different times. 
the next line. He is equal in deity, attributes, and nature with the Father and Son, and with them is to be worshipped and glorified. Jesus, in Matthew 28, calls for his followers to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, attesting to the equal status of the Holy Spirit um, that he shares with the Father and the Son. He's described in Scripture as being eternal, omnipresent. He possesses the divine intellect, and he acts according to his will. In Acts 5, there is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who sold some property and shared a portion of the property with uh, fellow believers, while trying to represent that they were sharing all of the property's value. Peter says this to Ananias. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Pastor Kyle um, mentioned during the start of this series that, that this statement of faith is consistent with long-standing church doctrine. And as I researched this particular section, Uh, of the statement of faith. I noted statements from early church leaders and creeds that closely follow even some of the phrasing that exists in this statement of faith. And that is the case with the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. The full deity of the Holy Spirit has been a consistent position from the time of the early church. The Nicene Creed, which was written in the fourth century, says this about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. So, the Holy Spirit, again, is equal in deity, attributes, and nature with the Father and the Son, and with them is to be worshipped and glorified. Next, the Spirit manifests God's active presence in the world, giving life in God's creation and new creation. Of course, each person in the Trinity participates in both creation and new creation. As to creation, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created. John 1.3 says that all things were made through Jesus. Likewise, in the new birth, um, we read that God the Father elects and that Jesus redeems by his sacrifice. But this statement refers to the Holy Spirit's unique role as life giver. And that term was also used in the in the Nicene Creed that I had just read. The creative plan of the Father is acted, on, uh, uh, is acted on by the work of the Son, and the breathed out Spirit is sent forth to bring it to life. Elihu says in Job 33.4, The Spirit have, of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
If you look at the statement, it says that by giving life, the Holy Spirit manifests God's active presence in the world through his creation. Now, the word manifest is a word that most of us probably rarely use outside of the discussion on uh, church doctrine. Anyone want to throw out an idea of what it means? Demonstrate? Yeah. Very good. And I threw that question out there, even though I hate to ask questions, if I answer questions, if, if I'd be sitting there. So thank you, Mike. Um, the, the Webster's definition is readily perceived by the senses, and especially the sense of sight. Synonym, synonyms, obvious, apparent, clear, plain, straightforward, unambiguous, unmistakable. So our, our statement is saying that the Spirit manifests God's active presence in creation, makes it obvious. You look at creation, the vastness of it as you look out, the complexity of it as you hone in, the variety, the beauty, the creativity, the power, and we should say, obviously, God. This idea of God's presence being manifested in creation is straight out of Romans 1. And I'm going to read it, a portion of it, and listen to all this manifestation language. And this is Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So through his role in bringing life to creation, the Holy Spirit made God's presence in the world obvious. Yet, no one acknowledged God's presence. Right? That's what Romans 1 says. Um, so take a look at the, this current sentence that we're looking at. The Spirit manifests God's active presence. Aren't you glad that it doesn't read like this? The Spirit manifests God's active presence in the world, giving life in God's creation, period. We would all be in trouble. But it goes on. Because... The Holy Spirit manifests God's active presence in new creation. The will of the Father and the redeeming sacrifice of the Son become effective to an individual as it is applied personally 
to that person, and new life, a new birth, is given. God's active presence in the world is not only manifested, but is now fully acknowledged by those that God has redeemed. People who previously gave no thought to God now pray for God's help and guidance in situations big and small. They ask, what is he trying to teach me in this difficult situation? How should I respond in, in that one? They praise him and give thanks when things are going well. This is not the old life with added morality or religious practice. It's a completely different way of seeing the world and living out one's life. We are thankful to the Holy Spirit um, that he didn't stop with creation, um, but that he manifested God to us, and now we see the world differently. The last line of this section. Existing forever with the Father and the Son, the Spirit is the agent of all blessing to God's creatures and makes possible communion with him. And this is really just a summary statement of what we've already discussed in this section. The Holy Spirit is the agent, the deliverer, the person who proceeds from the Father and Son and delivers every expression of God's love to his creatures. Any, any questions, anything before we move on to the second section? Okay. The work of the Spirit prior to Christ's coming. And again, before we go through a line-by-line discussion of this section, I'll take a slight detour. And um, I've been stressing over this part um, of of the teaching uh, because I really got bogged down. Um, I spent a lot of time reading on a topic that was unclear to me. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you um, just a little brief overview of, of a, a portion that, that's unclear, um, and then we'll move on, and hopefully I don't um, bog you down as, as we go through this. So there is one notable point of disagreement among scholars about the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, um, and it apparently existed through most of church history, um, and we, we can find uh, church fathers and, and really respected scholars who, who line up on, on um, either side. Uh, this disagreement centers around, did the Holy Spirit personally indwell believers in the Old Testament? There are, there are obviously variations, you know, people don't, especially with the the little thumbnail arguments I'm going to give you, people don't fall exactly into one or the other, but I'll I'll give you the the 
overview uh, of the two categories. Um, there are those that say that the Holy Spirit did not indwell. God did not need to indwell his people. He was with them, first in the presence of the patriarchs and then in the temple. Joel, 20, uh, Joel 3.28 prophesies about the coming latter day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. In John's gospel, um, he writes that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. Elsewhere in John, Jesus tells his believers that they know the Holy Spirit because he is with them and he will be, future, will be in them. So people that fall into this camp would say, that the Holy Spirit is doing something entirely new in the uh, New Testament. That he didn't dwell in the Old Testament. The, the other broad camp would say that the Holy Spirit did indwell. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Cannot. Nicodemus is confused, and Jesus continues, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand? As if this is not a new thing. In Romans 8, Paul says that there are two kinds of people, those in the flesh and those indwelt of the Spirit. Paul says that those in the flesh cannot please God. And the Holy Spirit um, did um, permanently indwell some believers in the Old Testament. So for people in this group, they would say that the changes of, in, in the way the Holy Spirit acted from Old Testament to New Testament is not one of nature, completely different, but one of degree. That the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament worked with the nation of Israel in, in a... Um, more muted role, and Pentecost, um, when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the New Testament, is just a difference of degree. Now the Holy Spirit is poured out like a flood on all nations, all peoples, spreading all over the world. So those are the two views. And the reason I, I discuss them both for your consideration is I, I have a... Um, sense of, of where the statement of faith of sovereign grace would lead, but it's not clear to me. Um, if I thought it was, I, I, would, I would teach it the way I saw it, um, uh, but it wasn't clear, so I'm just throwing out um, the, those two things for you to consider, um, and I hope I didn't mess Doug up for next week. Um, and, and, and the way he's going to present it. Um, but what the proponents of both positions would agree on is the work of the Holy Spirit was not as defined in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, every believer is promised that the Spirit will live with them to guide, grow, comfort them, that a work is being done in each believer that will be completed, and we don't have those clear statements of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We see the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals 
to anoint them at times um, for specific tasks. The anointing is often temporary uh, in nature and is apparently at times without regard to whether that individual has salvation or not. Uh, Just uh, to consider um, the case of of, of Balaam, who was uh, a prophet, not of the nation of Israel. The king of Moab gets fearful when he sees uh, Israel uh, about to enter the promised land. He gets fearful because of the size of them. Um, and he calls upon Balaam to curse Israel. Scripture says that God gives Balaam the words to speak, and the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam to bless Israel three times. Later, however, we read that Balaam advised Moab to intermarry with Israel as a way of sharing the gods of Moab with Israel and and, uh, drawing their affections away from the Lord. And that eventually, um, Balaam dies by the sword at the hands of the nation of Israel. Balaam experienced the Holy Spirit for a very specific specific task that was limited and, and temporary in nature. Okay. Moving on to the wording now of um, this section. The eternal spirit was present at the beginning of God's creation, carrying out the creative word of God and giving life to all things. We've already talked about this in the discussion of the first section. God the Father has a purpose in creation. The Son creates all things and then the Spirit manifesting, bringing them to life. Psalm 104, 29 and 30 uh, praises God for the variety of uh, God's creatures and, and the life that, that God brings and says, when you send forth your Spirit, they are created. Next line. In God's work under the Old covenant, the Spirit was present with God's people to consecrate, deliver, guide, and grant saving faith in the promises of God. And this, this section, this, this sentence answers the what God was doing. So he was there He was present to consecrate, deliver, guide, grant saving faith. And I'll just give you a a biblical text to support each uh, act of of the Holy Spirit. So um, King David writes of his presence in Psalm 139, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. King David affirms that uh, the Holy Spirit is present um, wherever God's creation is. The Holy Spirit consecrated. In in this um, context, it means to dedicate to a divine purpose. 
such as the, the craftsman Bezalel, who worked on the tabernacle. God says in Exodus 31, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. The Holy Spirit was was present with God's people in the Old Testament to deliver and guide them. According to the prophets Isaiah and Nehemiah, it was the Holy Spirit who guided and gave rest to the nation of Israel during its 40-year wandering after the Exodus. Although Israel grieved the Holy Spirit by their rebellion, the Holy Spirit uh, granted saving faith in the promises of God. When it was time to enter the promised land, 12 men were sent to spy out the land. Ten were afraid to enter um, due to the size of the, habit, of the inhabitants and the fortification of the city. They didn't trust God who promised that he was delivering them into that land. Only two Caleb and Joshua believed that God would deliver them um, into the land he had promised. Of Caleb, Scripture says, he had a different spirit and followed God fully. Likewise, in, in Numbers 27, it says that the spirit was in Joshua. Moving on to the next Line, he empowered prophets to reveal God's word, appointed elders to render judgment, raised up judges to bring deliverance, anointed priests and kings as his representatives, and inspired the record of Old Covenant revelation. The prior sentence um, being the what God was doing, uh, this sentence is the who. Who, who was... Who do we see in the Old Testament God interacting most often with? And we see the Holy Spirit working especially through various positions of leadership in the Old Testament to accomplish his specific purposes. For example, the Spirit comes upon the prophet Azariah and he delivers God's word to King Asa to bring about religious reform. The prophet Micah says, As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. When Moses is overwhelmed with resolving disputes in all of Israel, 70 elders are appointed, and the 70 elders receive some of the Spirit of God. Uh, that had been given to Moses. Likewise, um, judges uh, deliver Israel from oppression. Um, We have expressions of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Gideon, uh, or we see the Spirit of the Lord rushing on Samson, and he performs feats of great strength to deliver God's people. The Spirit comes upon kings to allow them to guide God's people. The Spirit entered King Saul, and Saul immediately prophesied, showing that he had the Spirit. We we later read that it left him. 
the Spirit came upon King David, and it was a, it was a permanent indwelling. Finally, the Spirit inspires writers to record Old Covenant revelation. Second Peter says, men, Second Peter 1.21, Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, we come to to the last statement of of, of this section. Through all the institutions and offices of the Old Testament, the Spirit's work pointed to the ultimate revelation of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So if the previous two sentences were the, the what and the who, this last section tells us the why. What, what was the Spirit ultimately doing um, by his work, by his interactions with, with the people in the Old Testament? And here it says that the, the, the work pointed to the ultimate revelation of God through his son Jesus. When we consider the unique role of the Holy Spirit... This why should be obvious to us. We've discussed that the Holy Spirit functions as the agent bringing God's blessing. We started out by saying that he eternally proceeds from the Father and Son expressing their love. Of course, we would expect that it would be the great joy and purpose of the Holy Spirit to point ahead to this climactic moment in creation's history, the single greatest expression of love that there will ever be. So, for example, when the Spirit uniquely empowers judges like Samson to provide victory over over oppressors, it was never lasting. Even in success... The insufficiency of such victory stood in contrast to the promised deliverer to come. Isaiah 9-7 says, Of the increase of his, the coming Messiah, government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Likewise, the personal sin of Israel's high priests, their never-ending requirement of sacrifice, pointed to a greater mediator between God and man who would restore our relationship with God by his single sacrifice. Finally, many of the kings of Israel and Judah were wicked and self-serving. And all of them were flawed, causing Israel to look to the coming king who would rule with justice and care for his people. In Ezekiel 34, God pronounces judgment against the shepherds of Israel who have fattened themselves to the harm of the sheep. And God promises to intervene in this injustice. 
Ezekiel 34, 22 to 24. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Our pastors um, will be starting a sermon series of, of Hebrews soon, which make all of these connections of Jesus being the better prophet, the better priest, um, his offering uh, being a better uh, sacrifice, etc. In all of his work in the Old Testament, guiding, delivering, blessing, teaching, the Spirit gave a, forta- a foretaste of the things to come, a longing for the promised perfect Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we are um, thankful uh, for your word. We are thankful um, that your spirit has been poured out, that that we um, have a revelation of things that that, uh, the prophets of old longed to see. Pray that we wouldn't take lightly um, the word that you have given us, the spirit that you have given us, the promises um, that we have, um, and, and that um, armed with such things, it would be our great desire to love and serve you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.